We are so glad that you have chosen to stream this audio, and we hope it will encourage you in your faith and your walk towards Christ-likeness. As a side note, we pray that this audio sermon is just supplemental in your relationship with Christ and in no way replaces the church you are plugged into or the pastor that God has put in your life to shepherd and care for your soul. And so with that said, please enjoy this sermon. We have prayed that God would use it in your life. And we talked about how Luke is this incredible guy. He's, he's, an, he's a historian, and so he seeks out eyewitness accounts, and he, he compiles sources. As he's compiling this account of Jesus' life, ministry, and works, he is seeking out the facts from so many different places, from so many eyewitness accounts, and he does so as a reliable historian. He also does so as a doctor. He was a medical doctor, and so he was not just this man who just believed in the supernatural, but in fact, he believed there was a natural way that the world worked. And so he practiced medicine based on the way that the natural order plays out. And so Luke was a man of, of science and history, and yet also a man who believed that God, who created all things, can do supernatural things as well. And so we talked about how faith and reason are, are not contrary to one another, but in fact, they're complementary. And Luke is a, is a wonderful person for us to go to uh, with our questions. As we look at Luke's account of the gospel of Jesus Christ, we are looking at, in many ways, the gospel written for skeptics. We are written, it is written for not just those who know their Bibles, who know the Old Testament and the New Testament, who, who know what God has done. It's written also for those who need convincing. It's written also for those who need to see how God has worked out his plan, fulfilling it all in the person and work of Jesus. And so Luke writes a very reliable account for us, and it's not just an account for religious people, it's an account for the skeptics and the doubters as well. And so if you want to know who Jesus is, and I would say you must know who Jesus is, there is no more important question in life than answering this question, who is Jesus? Because if he is who he says he is, then everything that is said about him matters. And if he's not who he says he is, it's, it's good to know that as well, because this one man has had an impact on human history that no other person ever has had. The church continues to grow, and it continues to grow despite what might seem to some a, a foolish mes- message, a message that a Savior has come and accomplish salvation for those who would trust in him by dying a brutal and violent, awful, shameful death. The message, it doesn't make sense to our, our natural capabilities. In fact, Paul, as he writes about the message of the gospel, he says that it has to be spiritually discerned. God has to give us an understanding of these things, that they are true. Because it's not how we would accomplish the plan, is it? It's not how you and I would go about this grand plan of redemption. We would probably pick someone who, who was strong and mighty, was going to come in as a conquering king, and yet what God did was he came in the flesh, taking on human flesh in humility, and then actually laid down his life out of love for his people. And Luke 
has seen this God do amazing things as a missionary who has traveled with the Apostle Paul and others and seen the amazing things that Jesus continues to do through his church. And so Luke wants us to know who this Jesus is and what this Jesus has done. And today what we're going to see in Luke chapter 1 verses 5 through 25 is the preparation for Jesus' coming. We're going to see an angel announce that there's a messenger coming before Jesus the Messiah would come on the scene, and he was to prepare God's people for what God was about to do through Jesus Christ. And we're going to see today that even then, even in the face of this miraculous, clear revelation of God, there's a man who who doubts. There's a man who has some questions. And we're going to see what God does. So turn with me to Luke chapter 1, starting in verse 5. And we're going to look at two or three things this morning in Luke's account as he prepares us for Jesus coming on the scene. Start with me in verse 5. It says, In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. So, so Luke is, is setting up a scene for us uh, as he's about to tell us about John the Baptist, who was the prophesied messenger who would come before Jesus came on the scene. He, he sets up this account for us by telling us a little bit about John's parents. Uh, he tells us about Zechariah, his father, and Elizabeth, his mother, as we'll see here in just a few minutes. But there, there's three people that, you know, you probably want to be aware of just in these few, first few verses. Uh, uh, Herod is one that we'll continue to talk about as we go throughout the Gospel of Luke a little bit. Uh, he, he was a, a, a king in the area and a political uh, ruler there. And, and then we see uh, Zechariah and Elizabeth introduced, who are going to be our most important uh, characters in the story today. And look at what it says about Zechariah and Elizabeth. Luke tells us that they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. So maybe you've seen this commercial. I have this commercial in mind when I was reading about Zechariah and Elizabeth. It's an AT&T commercial where, uh, you know, they're kind of at at the headquarters of AT&T, and and this one couple is kind of the main characters in the commercial, and they're talking about this idea of perfect people, right? And so maybe you know some perfect people. These are the people that, like, every picture you take of them is a good picture, no matter, like, how, how awful the setup was. Like, it just comes out good. Like, they always look good. They, they always look good. They're really intelligent. They're always successful. And they just seem to have life figured out. They're the perfect couple. And so in this commercial, they're, they're talking about this, this couple that they know from their work that is just the picture-perfect couple. And... And they're so frustrated by it because they're so nice. And, and, and you just kind of hate them a little bit because you want to be them, you know? They're so nice. They're so pretty. They're, they've got everything put together. And it seems like they just have life figured out. And so the, this other couple, they're so frustrated with this perfect couple. Maybe, maybe you know a, a perfect couple like this, like somebody that, like, you, you just kind of hate them a little bit because you want to be them, you know? 
And, and, and this is kind of the idea with Zechariah and Elizabeth. They were, they were this amazing couple. They, they were a couple from an amazing lineage. It, it's almost like if we were to imagine that Billy Graham had a daughter that married Charles Spurgeon's son. And, and his son was also an amazing preacher, okay? It's just this amazing couple. So they are descended from this lineage of priests, and, and so they are important in, in the life of the people of God. And, and yet they're also incredibly moral people. They are righteous before God. They, they do what God says. They, they try to follow his word in every way that they can, and they are obedient in all these different ways. And then it says, and yet they were without child. And see, to us, that, that maybe doesn't, doesn't land with as much punch as, as it would have for the early hearers who originally read Luke. You see, whenever we talk about this idea of, of, of not being able to have children, of, of, of being barren, it, it's a hard thing for us as well in a modern day. It's an incredibly painful thing to walk through. It's painful in itself because there's so much joy to be found in having kids. And so it's incredibly painful for us. But in the ancient world, it wasn't just painful for all of those reasons. It was painful for some others as well. You see, having kids in the ancient world was to have a retirement plan. And so if you didn't have kids, like, you were in trouble, because there, there weren't stock portfolios and ways that you could invest. Like, maybe you've got a job where, where you, don't, you don't have, like, the, you're not going to get a pension. You don't get a pension, and, and they don't really, like, contribute to your retirement, and so it's all on you. Like, you have to set up for your retirement and think about that early, because the way your job works is, is they don't contribute to it. And so you think, it's all on me. Well, even more so in the ancient world, it was all on them. And, and so to be without a child was to be without hope for the future. It was, it was to be in a really dire spot. And not just that, it was also looked at as a curse. And so in the ancient world, to not be able to have children was to be cursed by God. That was the common way of thinking. And yet, what we read about Zechariah and Elizabeth is that they were righteous before God. They were, they were people who knew God and loved God and worshipped God and sought to follow all of his ways. And so what we're seeing here is not a couple that has been cursed by God, but a couple that has in fact walked with God closely and has walked through something incredibly difficult in life. You see, our circumstances don't always reveal our standing before God. They're not always an accurate indicator. Just like they're not for Zechariah and Elizabeth. Zechariah and Elizabeth were an incredibly righteous couple. They loved God and they sought to follow him in every way they could. And so they were righteous. They had good standing before God. They had right standing before him. It's not that God is, is punishing them. It's not that they're cursed by God. They, in fact, know God and walk more closely with him than many others do. But it's that our circumstances don't always reveal what is true about our relationship with God. Because in our broken Genesis 3 world, where everything has been broken and affected by sin, good things happen to bad people and bad things happen to good people. That's a part of our world right now. 
In fact, it's, it's one of the things that often uh, makes, makes some of us have some questions about this whole Christianity thing. Because when we look at the world, we don't see a world that is filled with justice, but with injustice. We see those who have no regard for God whatsoever enjoying their lives and being blessed in, in seemingly extravagant ways. They, just, they have success in, in their careers, and, and maybe they have relationships that you sought after your whole life and, and haven't been able to find. They have all these good things happening for them, it seems, and yet they totally disregard God and his word and what he would call them to be and do. We see good things happening to, to bad people in our world. We see people who, who, who sin against one another and commit incredible acts of evil, and yet they're incredibly successful and rich, and life just seems to be working out for them despite the things that they do to others. And then we see in our world that there's also this idea that bad things happen to good people. Bad things happen to, to those who, who love God and seek to follow after him. This life in this world post-Genesis 3 where sin has entered in and fractured everything, impacted everything that we can see and know, it's, it's broken, it's corrupted. Things don't happen the way that they should and this is not a reflection. This is why we can't look to our circumstances as an accurate indicator of whether or not God is pleased with us. Just because you're experiencing a ton of success and, and, and enjoyment of, of all sorts of pleasures in life doesn't mean that God is pleased with you. And just because you are experiencing incredible trials and walking through an incredible amount of pain and sorrow does not mean that God is displeased with you. Our circumstances are not an accurate indicator a lot of the time of our standing before God. It would be a mistake for us to believe that, that the idea that those who obey God are always blessed and those who disobey God are always cursed. You know what that's called? It's called a prosperity gospel. And it's a false gospel. And it's false because it doesn't actually have any hope in it. If, if, if God blessing you is, is all up to you and your actions and how well you can obey God and walk with God, then you have no hope. Because you'll never be good enough. And that's hard for us to hear in a culture that constantly tells us you are good enough in yourself and you do not need anyone else or anything. In a self-esteem boosting culture, it's hard for us to hear that. But it's true. And, and the way that scripture words it in, in Romans chapter 3 is, is that it, it doesn't matter how many good things you've done versus the bad things you've done because all people, all of us, we're all in the same boat, have fallen short of the glory of God by sinning at all. We have all fallen short of God's glory. It, it, the standard is not if you're better than your neighbor. 
So Zechariah and Elizabeth, as they're looking at their lives and they're looking at their circumstances, it would be a mistake for them to think we're cursed by God because we've somehow disobeyed him in some way and and start to compare themselves to their neighbor because that's not how it works. We're all in the same boat. We all need God's grace because every one of us has fallen short of the standard. The standard is too high for you to meet. That's why God has sent Jesus. That's why we're going to read about the messenger who comes to prepare God's people for the coming of the Messiah. It's because we need a Savior. We need someone to rescue us. This life is incredibly hard because this Genesis 3 post-fall reality is that things don't play out the way that they should. But the gospel actually points us to a future hope that one day they will. One day, Jesus and his second coming will come to restore that which has gone wrong. Every tear will be wiped from our eyes for those who trust in Jesus. One day this will be true for us. You see, in the book of Malachi, we read about this coming messenger that we'll read about here in just a few verses. Malachi, see, because the people of God in the time of Malachi, they were asking all these same kinds of questions that we have. If the world is the way that it is, then then should I just live however I want? Because if bad things happen to good people and good things happen to bad people, then maybe I should just do what I want. Maybe I should just be bad because good things seem to work out for the bad people. See, they were, they were asking these same kinds of questions. If you go and read through the book of Malachi, like we studied on Wednesday nights this year, you'll see that the people are doubting God, questioning God, and they are asking him all these sorts of questions. And God's response to them points them to what he's going to do. In Malachi chapter 3, we read this. It says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming, and who can stand when he appears? The implication is no one. For he is like a refiner's fire, and like fuller's soap, he will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings and righteousness to the Lord. He's saying there's going to be a time when, when God comes to his people for the purpose of redeeming them, of purifying them, of making them new. And then he says also, then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker and his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. So God will also come to judge wickedness and injustice in the world. And then we skip down to the end of chapter 3 there in the book of Malachi, and it says, then once more... You shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between the one who serves God and the one who does not serve him. 
So Malachi, in the book of Malachi, God gives his people hope who are asking these same kinds of questions about their world and their circumstances and their day. He says God would, would send a messenger before coming himself to prepare God's people. And then he talks about how God would be coming to redeem his people. And then he talks about how God will come to judge those who are not his people, who have rebelled against him, who have done wickedness, evil, and injustice in the world. And then in the end... When all is said and done, the distinction between those who are righteous, who trust in and love God, and those who are unrighteous, who rebel against God and hate God, will be made clear. In the end, things will be made the way that they should be. This idea that good things happen to bad people won't be true anymore. And bad things happening to good people won't be true anymore. In the end, Jesus will restore things to the way they should be. And the way that Malachi says we know God is doing this is that he would send a messenger. And that's where we pick up in the book of Luke, starting in verse 8. We'll see that our circumstances tempt us to doubt what God has promised And then we'll see finally that God always keeps his promises despite our doubts. Now, while he was serving as priest before God and his division was on duty according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And so the casting of lots was almost this dice-casting idea, but for us, it's it's a random thing. For them, it was a faith-filled act. And so they cast lots, and, and, and Zechariah is chosen to be the one, the priest that day, because his, his team's on duty. And so it's, it's, it's his shift, and he's about to go in and, and accomplish the task that was set for him. And he's about to enter into the temple, into the holy place, and, and do this. He's about to burn incense in there. And, and the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense, and there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. So Zechariah is inside the temple, and an angel appears to him. Not your typical Monday, right? But that, that, this is the idea here, though. Zechariah is doing his job, okay? He is going about a normal day, and then something abnormal happens, on that day. God does something completely unexpected. Zechariah had, had no reason to expect what's about to happen. He'd been praying for years, for decades, that, that God would bless them with a child, and, and he does not expect what God is about to do because, like we read, both him and his wife were advanced in years, meaning they were real old. That's what that means. Advanced in years means really, really old. That's what it means. It means this could not happen. It means what we're about to see is miraculous. So this angel appears to Zechariah at the right hand of the altar of incense. And I just want to note, do you see the kind of detail that Luke gives us? Luke does not have to tell us that this angel shows up on the right side of the altar. Okay, but Luke is writing a historical account and he shows you that with the amount of detail he gives you. He's writing for us what is a reliable historical account because he has gone to people, maybe Zechariah or Elizabeth or their descendants or whoever it might have been, and he said, hey, how'd this play out? How did this happen? 
He, he, he's somehow gotten the story from an accurate source. And so he's telling you every detail that he can give you to show you that what he's writing is not fable or myth. It, it happened. He gives you an incredible amount of detail, a kind of detail that in the ancient world, like we talked about last week, you do not see in the writing of myths and legends. You do not see this kind of detail in those kinds of literature in the ancient world. The kind of literature we have here in the Gospel of Luke is completely different from that. And so don't miss those details as Luke is writing because they, they point you to the reliability that you can trust Luke, that he's a trustworthy source of information about Jesus. And so this angel appears to him, and in verse 12 it says, And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. Do you know that in the Bible, when, when an angel appears to you, uh, oftentimes the response is fear? Because angels are mighty. This would have been a frightening experience. And so, so this idea that angels are just kind of these, these cutesy little beings that are just filled with light, and they just kind of flap their wings around, and they just kind of drift above the clouds... That's not what an angel is. An angel would have been an incredibly glorious messenger of God, and to see one would have struck fear in anyone who saw it. And so Zechariah is like, what is happening? He's like, I just came in here to, to burn some incense, and now there's this angel showing up, and, and it says, but the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. And your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. God does incredible things, even in the womb. And, and, and the point of this passage here is, is not stop all your drinking. Jesus made wine and, and drank wine. Okay? That's not what he's trying to get at. He's trying to get at that, that this John is going to be a, a messenger of the Lord, and he's gonna be, it's gonna be able, you're going to be able to see his devotion to the Lord through some specific ways. You're going to see him do some specific things that show you that he is this messenger. And so it talks about this messenger, John, who, who's coming, and he's gonna, there's going to be joy and gladness. Many will rejoice at his birth because it means that God is fulfilling the promises he made 400 years earlier. And so the angel comes to Zechariah, and he says, hey, I'm going to answer this prayer you've been praying for decades, but I'm also gonna, we're also going to be answering the prayer that God's people have been praying for hundreds of years. And me answer, God answering this prayer, this message I'm giving you that God is going to answer your prayer, your and your wife's prayer, it, it, it's, it's about more than just you guys. What you're going to see is that you can continue to trust this God because he always keeps his promises. This is what the birth of John the Baptist is about. It's about God fulfilling what he had promised to do. He'll be great before the Lord. And then in verse 16, he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the disobedient, of the wisdom, to, uh, and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. 
If we go back to the book of Malachi, in chapter 4, what we read is this. Behold, God says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. And so Elijah was this incredibly famous prophet in the Old Testament. He was a prophet who warned God's people of coming judgment in hopes that they might turn to the Lord in repentant faith. So this is the thing about God. He, he sends messengers and he speaks to us not to just condemn us, but to call us to himself. He so badly wants you to turn to him that he's, he's inspired 66 books that you might hear him speak to you. That's why this book was written. That's why Luke writes. That's why the prophets spoke in obedience to God. When, they, when, when, when God called them to give messages that were not easy to hear to people who did not want to hear them, it's why they still did it. Because God wanted his word to bring about the transformation and repentant faith of his people. He wanted them to turn back to himself. And so Elijah was this famous prophet who warned of God's coming judgment in hopes that the people would turn to the Lord in repentance. And then in Malachi, God says that he's going to send another Elijah to warn people of the coming judgment prior to the day of the Lord, which is when God himself would show up. And so prior to this day of of redemption and purification that we read about in Malachi 3 and this day of of judgment as well, where God will right the wrongs, he's going to send a messenger or another Elijah, another prophet, to proclaim a message of repentance, to say, turn from your sin, turn from your rebellion against God, turn to God and walk with him and be ready for what God is about to do because God is about to do incredible things through this God-man, Jesus Christ. And so a messenger is sent to prepare God's people and what we read that the angel tells Zechariah is that his son is going to be this messenger. It would have been hard to take because he would, have, he, would have, he would have heard Malachi's prophecy, and he would have known it's been 400 years, okay? And so he's thinking, okay, really? Like, you're saying that my wife, who is older than old, is going to have a baby, and then that baby is going to be the fulfillment of a prophecy that God's people have been waiting for 400 years for God to bring about, And we're going to see his response. And Zechariah said to the angel, how shall I know this? He said, this is impossible, he says. For I am an old man and my wife has advanced in years. Guys, what he just did is he just said, okay, I'm old, but my wife is older than old. And this is not the way to go about it, okay? So just an aside, just, you know, this is free. Um... Guys, when, when someone asks how old you and your wife are, you're honest about your own age, and then you pay her a compliment, okay? <laughs> Don't do what Zechariah just did. Now, Zechariah was a little bit lucky 
because he was, it was just him and the angel, and they were in the temple, and no one else could hear this. But then it got really unlucky because it got recorded for everyone else to read for the rest of history, okay? So just be careful about what you say. Fair? Okay. Anyways, moving on. Zechariah is like, listen, how is this going to happen? Because, listen, like, I'm real old, and look at her, she's really old too, okay? This, there's no way that this is possible. And the angel answered them. Look at, look at what the angel, look at what Gabriel says. This is great. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. And I just kind of picture mic drop, you know? He just says, I'm Gabriel. Like, that's the first thing Gabriel says to, to Zechariah's doubts and his questions is, is, you realize who I am, right? I'm Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. Like, you could not be seeing me unless this was happening, okay? He says, I'm Gabriel. And, and so that's, that's his first answer. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And so, you know, you just kind of, you wish if it were you and Gabriel just said, I'm Gabriel, I stand in the presence of God. At that point, you should just be like, you're right, I'm on board. Because Zechariah doesn't do this. And then Gabriel says, okay, I'm going to tell you, listen, I'm an angel. I, stand in, I spend all my time in God's presence. And then when I'm not in God's presence, I'm talking to dudes like you who are always doubting me. And I'm giving you God's words. And I'm appearing to you in the temple, like if, if this were to happen to you, this is the place that, you know, you would, should probably expect something miraculous from God. And, and yet you've been praying for decades for God to do something miraculous, and I'm telling you he's going to do it, and you're still doubting me. And so just to give you some, some, some further assurance, because I know that's what you're wanting, you're not going to be able to talk during your wife's whole pregnancy. Can you imagine the kind of trouble you'd be in? Like, if, if you could not talk during your wife's whole pregnancy, it, this would either play out one of two ways. It would either go really poorly for you, and you'd be in the doghouse for nine to ten months. Or, your wife would be rejoicing because you, you had to shut up, okay? And, and so, I don't know how Elizabeth thought about this, but you know, I, I just have to imagine that she was in, in one of those two places or somewhere kind of in the middle, you know. Um, but Zechariah can't talk. And so this is how the angel says, you're, you're going to know that what I've said is true. You're going to know that God is going to do this. Is, is your wife's actually going to get pregnant? I mean, that's going to be some assurance in itself. And then you're not going to be able to talk the whole time. And so he's like, I, I know you're doubting, so I'm just going to give you reason and reason and reason for you to believe in this amazing work of God that's playing out before you. You see, we're, we're tempted to doubt when God reveals himself in clear, miraculous, and supernatural ways. You see, we look at Zechariah and we're like, dude, an angel showed up. Like, why, like what are you doubting for? But in reality, you and I do this too. Okay. Human beings have been doing this. You see, we, we think if God would just show me a sign, if he would just show me that he's real, if he would just do something supernatural, if he would just do something miraculous, then, then I would trust in him, then I would repent, then I would believe, then I would walk with him. But you know what the testimony of the Bible is? 
is that over and over and over again, God does these clear, miraculous, supernatural ways of revealing himself, and people continue to doubt and disbelieve. And so to think that you and I would be any different is what C.S. Lewis calls chronological snobbery, thinking we're just, we're just more intelligent than they were. And it's just ignorant. Because God is constantly revealing himself to us through his word. He's, he's constantly revealing himself to his people by fulfilling his promises, and we just continue to doubt him. It doesn't matter the, the amazing things we see God do. I mean, I mean, sometimes, you know, we will see God answer a prayer. We will pray for someone to be healed, and doctors will tell us there is no way that this can happen. You need to say your goodbyes, and then the person will continue to live for years and, and will still doubt, even though medical professionals and, and science are telling us there's no way this is possible, and then God continues to f- sustain and give life, and we doubt. It, it, and it's, you know, maybe we celebrate for a little bit. Maybe we believe for, for just a minute, but then, you know, a couple weeks down the road, all of a sudden we, we wonder if that was actually God. We wonder if God actually did something incredible there, and, and we just start to rationalize it. And we start to doubt. You see, we have the same problem in us that Zechariah has. And, and, and people who have experienced God do supernatural things will, will tell you this. That even those supernatural things that have happened in their life weeks, I mean days, or even years, months later, are tempted to doubt that God did them. We're an incredibly forgetful people. And we're incredibly mistrusting people. We, we doubt God and that he fulfills his promises all the time. And so don't look at Zechariah and think, man, what a fool. Think, man, God, give me grace to believe. Because that's the thing about faith is it's, it's not always easy. Zechariah has been through some stuff and so have God's people prayed for decades, been ridiculed by his peers because they see that, that his wife's barren and they think she's cursed and that he's cursed. And yet he just continues to serve faithfully as a priest. He continues to pray. And then when God shows up and does something amazing in his life, and not just significant for him, but to fulfill his promises for God's people as a whole, his first inclination is to doubt. You see, we struggle like this too. We ought not to look at Zechariah and think, man, can't you figure this out? Because we too trust our own perceptions more than we trust God's promises. We trust our circumstances more than we trust God's word. We trust that we have an accurate view of how things are because we see that things are not playing out the way that they should and we think, this is how it really is. And so we're tempted to doubt just like Zechariah is. And so Zechariah, he, he then has to go out of the temple, right? And so... So the, the angel of Gabriel tells him what's about to happen and the way he's going to know that God is keeping his promise 
And the people were waiting for Zechariah, verse 21. And they were wondering at his delay in the temple. He's, they're like, what's taking so long? They're like, you've been in there a long time, man. You know. and, and they're saying, what happened? And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them. And they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. So even, even, even his peers are like, oh my gosh, God did something incredible. Just because they see that he can't talk. And, and Zechariah saw an angel. And so his peers are, are seeing that he's seen a vision, and he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. Can, can you imagine having to play charades for nine to ten months? I mean, it's really not an easy game. Maybe you're really good at it. You know? But Zechariah is going, okay. You know, he comes out of the temple, and they're, they're like, what happened in there? And he's like, all right, four words. And he says, and, he, and he's, you know, maybe he's, he's similar like wings. He's saying angel, you know, he's trying to get him to think big, mighty angel. And then he doesn't know what to do for of and the, and so he just kind of skips those and goes to Lord, you know, and, and he just tries to act that out, and I don't even know how he would. Maybe he gets like a symbol of a scepter or something, you know, he's acting like he's sitting on a throne. And he's saying angel of the Lord, you know, and then he, he's just trying to figure out how to tell, and then he just says, you know, talking, nope. And, and he's just trying to communicate that he's seen something miraculous and amazing and that he can't talk. And, and then he's got to do this for the next nine to ten months. And, and when his son's born, they actually, like, they give him something to write on because he, he can't tell them that his name's John. And, and so Zechariah's just in this spot, you know. And... It can be tempting for us to, to say, okay, well, God's punishing Zechariah for his doubt. But I think what we see here is not wrathful punishment, but loving discipline. And there's a, and a really important difference. I can't tell you how often I'm in a conversation with somebody where, where, where they don't see this difference in Scripture. It's really important. Because wrathful discipline... It, punishment is done out of wrath to establish justice to right a wrong. But discipline, it's done out of love to bring correction, growth, and healing. I think that's what God is doing with his servant Zechariah, as he's disciplining him. He's not exercising wrath towards him, but discipline. He wants Zechariah to, to come to know that he can trust his promises. And so he, he takes something away from him and he lets him go through something hard. And, and he does so out of love so that Zechariah will know he can trust that he fulfills his promises. You see, it, it's much more frightening when God just leaves us to ourselves, when he just leaves us to our sin. If you go to Romans chapter 1, what you read about there is, is how humanity just, our problem is we've been worshiping the creation rather than the creator. And we've been worshiping all these false gods, these idols, you know, comfort, pleasure, all sorts of things in place of God. And the judgment of God there on sin is the way he exercises his wrath is passive. He just lets them have what they want. He lets them continue to pursue what they desire. And that's how God shows wrath in Romans 1. 
as he lets them have the consequences of what they're pursuing as they rebel against him. That is a much more frightening place to be, and you should be much more concerned about your status before God and your life if God doesn't speak to you and correct you than you are if God is constantly correcting you. Because if God is correcting you, he's pursuing you. If God is speaking to you, he wants you to come to him. If, if God is doing these things, he's out of love seeking to discipline you and mold you and shape you into the image of his son and, and to make you more like Jesus that you might have more joy, not less. And so this kind of discipline, I mean, God help us to see it for what it is. Lastly, we see that God always fulfills his promises no matter what our circumstances say. Zechariah and Elizabeth had no reason to believe that God would do this. And look at what verses 24 and 25 say. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach from among people. God did exactly what he promised he would do. And God always does what he promises that he would do. There's this theme of barrenness and then God bringing about the gift of life through a child throughout the scriptures, starting with Abraham and Sarah, going to Isaac and Rebekah and Jacob and Rachel, and then throughout the Old Testament and then up until the New, there's this theme that God is continuing to fulfill his promises by continuing the line that the Messiah would come through. And that's the significance in this. When we read this passage, it's not, the point of this passage is not that there's hope for infertility in God, though there is. Though God is able to do miraculous things sometimes, and, and he chooses to do that sometimes, and, and that's incredible, and we should celebrate it and pray for it, and, and that's awesome. But the point of this passage is much greater than life in the midst of barrenness. The hope of this passage transcends circumstances. It's that God always keeps his promises. That's the hope of Luke chapter 1 is that God keeps his promises and that transcends whether or not you're blessed with marriage and children in life, whether or not you're blessed with a good job or career, whether or not, whether or not family relationships are working out around the holidays, whether or not things are going well in any arena of life. That hope transcends it all. That as we walk through a Genesis 3 broken world and we experience pain from suffering and struggles with sin and temptation, God always keeps his promises. And that is what Luke wants you to know happens in Jesus. Let's pray. Father God, we are in such desperate need of your son. And we are so grateful that though we are prone to doubt and wander, you have lovingly pursued us even disciplined and corrected us, pointed us back to yourself. And so God, we, we plead with you now, would you help us to grow in faith? Would you help us to trust you? Would you help us to believe that you always keep your promises? 
and that in the person and work of Jesus, we have seen the most clear evidence of that. And we are thankful for what we've read today because much as you were preparing your people then for the coming of your son, as we enter into an Advent season in these next few weeks, we prepare to celebrate that he has come and that one day he will come again to right all that has gone wrong. And so, Lord, we pray that that day would come, and we pray in the meantime you would help us to trust. In Jesus' name, amen.